Good evening and welcome everyone to our Bible study. We're continuing our series out of bondage into abundance. Uh, we've been for a little while in part five. There are seven parts to this study and I'll mention this again. The notes and the recordings for all of these are available at our website which is new-life-ministries.org and sometimes there seems to be a problem with one or the other technology so I think there was a little bit of a problem last week at the end with the telephone but the recording came out fine so uh, you can get those notes and recordings on our website if you are following in the notes we've come to part five journey through the wilderness and we're actually going to hopefully be finishing this up tonight. Um, we are looking at five reasons or five purposes that God accomplished in the 40 years that Israel was in the desert. And we've mentioned this repeatedly, but it bears repeating yet again. Uh, for me, this is a powerful message that when Israel left Mount Sinai, it, it says in Deuteronomy 1-2 that it was an 11-day journey to the Promised Land. An 11-day journey ended up taking them 40 years. And the key to this whole thing we're going to be looking at tonight, why 40 years? Why not 4 or 10 or 12? Uh, this was not an arbitrary number and this will really I think confirm something that we've already mentioned throughout this section that God was dealing with Israel as a father deals with his son and part of that is teaching part of that is discipline and part of that is just plain old punishment and chastisement which is what we're going to look at more in our study tonight. Let me go through this list again of the five purposes that God wanted to accomplish in this long wilderness journey. Uh, number one, it was to humble them. Number two, to test them, to see what was in their heart. Number three, it was to teach them to live by the word of God. Number four, it was to discipline them. And number five, and this is where we're going to pick up tonight, it was to remove unbelief, rebellion, and backsliding. In other words, uh, it was kind of a weeding out process that God was taking the whole nation through. And this is something else that often impresses me you know I mentioned last time in Romans 11 Paul says behold therefore the goodness and the severity of God those two things don't seem to go together but they complement one another and we need to understand both of those concepts to have a full understanding of God's character God is good he's kind he's loving and he's merciful but he can also be a severe judge. Our God is a consuming fire. 
the Bible says. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so, when we look at this period of Israel's history, uh, we can see numerous examples of God's severity. And lest we think that, well, praise God, that was all Old Testament stuff. Now we're under the New Covenant and God's a lot nicer now. The writer of Hebrews says just the opposite. If God dealt that severely with the children of Israel under the Old Covenant, how much more strict will he be with us who have been purchased <clears throat> excuse me who have been purchased and redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ so if you're following in the outline we've come to page 69 and this is roman numeral 5 in part 5 entitled god removed unbelief rebellion and backsliding. And we're just picking out a couple of examples. If you read through Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you can find many, many more examples of this, but I think this will be uh, enough of a sampling for us to understand God is a serious God, and He's serious about disciplining and training his people, and sometimes even removing elements that will defile or corrupt the whole body, the whole congregation. And in Numbers 11, we ended with this last time, but I, again, I think there was a problem with the transmission, so let's just go through it again, and pardon me if it's a repeat or a review for some of you. Uh, a very long portion of scripture I want to read in Numbers 11, and Paul refers to this and some other examples in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10, a portion which we have read in the past that we'll be looking at again later on tonight, but he refers to some of these events in Israel's journey, and he warns the New Testament believer not to follow their bad example. And in particular, he refers to their grumbling and their complaining. And we pick it up here in verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Now I know None of us ever have any problems with grumbling or complaining, but just in case there's somebody listening on the Internet or maybe somebody listening to the recording later on, we'll go through this anyway. But just for the record, uh, my hand is up. I am a complainer. And when I read these verses, it kind of brings me back to my senses, and it's like, oops, when I complain... God hears me. The people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. They thought only Moses and their fellow Israelites were hearing them, but God was listening to every word. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord, our God is a consuming fire, 
Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the place was called Taborah, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. You know, I'm, I'm chuckling as I'm reading this. It's amazing how we pick and choose what we're going to remember and what we're going to forget. It seems that they forgot that while they were eating whatever they were eating in Egypt, they were slaves. They were being beaten, cruelly oppressed. And yet, now, Egypt has become the promised land. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. We studied earlier in this series, manna was called angel's food. It was also known as bread from heaven. This was miracle food that God was providing for them every single day. And here they are complaining about God's miraculous provision for them. We've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry. You don't want to do that. You really don't want to get God angry. And when he gets exceedingly angry, you're about to witness the severity of the Lord. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Now even Moses isn't complaining. What have I done to displease you, that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. Verse 18. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. And the moral of this story, before we continue, sometimes when we complain and grumble uh, loud enough and long enough, and God really gets angry, he says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. And after you're done having what you want, you'll be really sorry you ever grumbled or complained. And that's basically what's about to happen here. 
The Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat for just one day, or two days, or five, or ten, or twenty, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils, and you loathe it, because you have rejected the Lord, who is among you, and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, Here I am among six hundred thousand men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. Verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep. That's more than three feet deep. Three feet deep of quail all around the camp, as far as a man's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten omers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. This is scary stuff. God meant business, and when the people grumbled and complained, it angered him, and his fire consumed them. There's another example in the book of Numbers that demonstrates this severity of God and how one of the things he was accomplishing during this long period in the wilderness, he was weeding out and rooting out grumblers and complainers. Numbers 21 from verse 4 to verse 9. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, and here's the familiar refrain, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Obviously, they're referring to the manna. God's bread from heaven, angels' food, and what are they saying? We detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. 
So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. You may recall in John 3, Jesus refers to this incident, and he says, it's really a picture of me on the cross. And anyone that looks at me can be healed, can be saved, and can receive eternal life. But in the wilderness, God was dealing with their grumbling, their complaining, their impatience, and in a severe way. If it wasn't fire, it was venomous snakes, various ways that he was rooting out these bad elements from the congregation. Now we come to a clearer understanding of why they were going to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And it has to do with a 40-day spy mission that the Israelites undertook. And I want to take some time to look at this carefully because this is the whole explanation for the 40 years in the wilderness. And there are two different accounts that we need to look at to get the full picture here. And if you only read the first account, it seems like this whole spy mission was God's idea. And if it was God's idea, why is he so angry about it? But on closer examination, we'll see that it was actually the people's idea. And I think we can see that the whole idea sprang from a wrong spirit. It sprang from unbelief rather than real faith in what God had already spoken to them. All right, let's go first to Numbers chapter 13. And we're going to read portions from verse 1 down to verse 21. Numbers 13, verses 1 and onwards. Here it seems that the 12 spies, one representative from each of the 12 tribes, was sent into the promised land to explore the land for 40 days, bring back a report, and bring back samples of the fruit. It seems from this portion of Scripture that this was God's idea. It begins with verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. And we'll skip over that, but it gives uh, the names from each tribe, from the tribe of Reuben, uh, Shamuah, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, that's an important name to remember, from the tribe of Issachar, Egal, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, or Joshua, it's a variant uh, spelling of his name. These are the two we're going to be 
mentioning later, Caleb and Joshua. Verse 9, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti. Verse 10, from the tribe of Zebulun, etc. Verse 11, from the tribe of Manasseh. Verse 12, Dan. Verse 13, Asher, etc. Dropping down to verse 16. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. Verse 18 is a key part of this, 18 through 20. See what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land. Now, if you compare that with the account given in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Deuteronomy 1 adds a few more extremely important details about this whole story. And we'll pick it up in Deuteronomy 1 from verse 19 down to verse 24. Then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb, that's another name for Sinai, and went toward the hill country of the Amorites, through all that vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Verse 21, very important. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, period. So, they've come to the border of the promised land. All Moses tells them is, this is the land the Lord has given you. Go up and take possession. But look at verse 22. Then all of you came to me and said, Let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. This is a little different twist now. Moses is saying, Here's the land. Go up, take possession, the Lord has given it to you. The people come up with this brilliant idea. Let's send in some spies first 
and check out the land and bring back a report. Verse 23, the idea seemed good to me. Oh, man, those are scary words. We can hear a lot of grand ideas that seem good to us, but we better pray over it and find out whether the Lord says it's a good idea or not. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol and explored it. So now we have a little clearer picture. This spy mission was the people's idea. God's command was, go in, take possession of the land. I've given it to you, and I think you'll see as we move along, because of their unbelief, and this is why they never entered in to the promised land, but because of their unbelief, they have this brilliant plan for this 40-day spy mission to check things out first before they go in. Going back to Numbers 13 and reading further from verse 22, we see that at the end of 40 days, the spies came back. They even brought back proof from the land of Canaan that it was indeed a good land, flowing with milk and honey, a fruitful and marvelous place of abundance. Numbers 13, from verse 22 to verse 27. They, meaning these twelve spies, they went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahimon, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Verse 23, when they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That's a mighty big bunch of grapes, if it takes two men to carry one cluster of grapes. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So far, so good. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. Still, so far so good. No problems. However, it continues. And here's where it turns bad. Verse 28 down to verse 33. Right after they said, the land is good, it indeed flows with milk and honey, here is some of its fruit, but, 
be careful with that word. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Verse 30, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land. We can certainly do it. Verse 31, But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So, yes, they saw it was a good land. Yes, it does indeed flow with milk and honey. Yes, the fruit there is out of this world. But there are giants in the land. There are Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, all kinds of enemies living in there. And the majority of the spies, actually 10 out of the 12, came back with a negative report saying, We can't. Two different voices. Joshua and Caleb said, We can. The other 10 said, We can't. And the we can't message caught on a lot faster than the we can message, and they discouraged the whole congregation of Israel. Verse 32 again, they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. The land we explored devours those living in it. I don't know how they knew that. None of them got devoured. And it gets even weirder. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. You have to think about that for a minute. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. How do they know what they look like to a Hittite? This is all crazy. The devil's playing games with their minds. And when you start sinking into doubt and discouragement and unbelief, your mind can play tricks on you. And you can come to some real bad uh, perceptions and conclusions about reality. Because of this bad report, the hearts of the Israelites melted with fear, they became discouraged, they rebelled against God and against Moses, and they were unwilling to go in and possess the promised land. Now let's go back to Deuteronomy 1. We're jumping back and forth here. 
Deuteronomy 1, from verse 25 to verse 36. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, referring again to these spies, they brought it down to us and reported, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But, and Moses is recounting this whole story, but you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. Wow. They're really getting into a mess here now. They think they look like grasshoppers in the eyes of the Hittites. They think God hates them. And now they're unwilling even to go into this land that they just told us flows with milk and honey. They grumbled in their tents, The Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. God already told them he was going to make the enemy's hearts melt in fear, but now their hearts are melting in fear, and they haven't even had an encounter with a single giant or a single enemy yet and they've already lost the battle. Our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you, as he did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes, and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a father carries his son, all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God. There's the problem, verse 32. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God, who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, No one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give to your ancestors, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Now, if you really examine this whole thing closely, you'll discover something that's quite revealing. All of the questions that the Israelites wanted answers to when they sent these 12 spies in had already been answered by God before they even went in. In other words, they were questioning God's word. They were doubting what God had already told them, and so 
They were basically saying, we want to check this out for ourselves. We don't really trust God. We can't take him at his word. So we've got a lot of questions that we need answers to. So we're going to send these 12 spies in to check this thing out. And if you look at their questions, every single one of them was really a manifestation of the unbelief that was taking root in their hearts. Because God had already told them everything that they needed to know in order to go in and possess the promised land. Let's look at some of these. One of the things they wanted to verify was, what is the land like? Is it a good land or a bad land? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Now, those are valid questions. These are things you would want to know before you're going to risk your life to go in and fight with seven enemy nations to conquer a land. If the land's no good, why bother fighting for it? So these are, these are valid questions. What is the land like? Is it good or bad? Is the soil fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Every single one of those questions had already been answered long before by God himself. For instance, way back in Exodus 3, verse 8, at the burning bush, here's what God said, I'm taking you to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So, there was no question about whether it was a good or a bad land. God said it's a good and spacious land. What is the land like? It flows with milk and honey. In Deuteronomy 6, and we read all these verses earlier on, in Deuteronomy 6, God had already told them, it's a land with vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. So we know it has trees. It's a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. God had given them a lot of detailed answers to their questions already. It's a land where bread will not be scarce, and you will lack nothing. It's a land where the rocks are iron, and you can dig copper out of the hills. In Deuteronomy 8, he said, It's a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. So all of their questions were basically expressions of their doubt. Well, we don't really know if we can trust God at his word or not. We need to see this for ourselves. We need to check this out. Well, it gets worse. They wanted to know what kind of towns are there. Are they unwalled or are they fortified? Again, God had already answered that question. In Deuteronomy 6, he had told them, it's a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. 
wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. And another set of questions they were seeking answers to through this spy mission. What are the people who live there like? Are they strong or weak, few or many? Now, that's a very important question. What kind of people we got to fight when we get over there? Are they big? Are they strong? Are they few? Or are they many? Well, God had answered all of those questions ahead of time. He had told them in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, it's a good and spacious land. It's also the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Yes, there are a bunch of other people living there. Nations of people are occupying that land. In Exodus 23, he went on to answer their questions long ahead of time in this way. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. God had already pre-warned them that there were seven nations occupying the land of Canaan who were stronger and more numerous than the Israelites. He had already told them that. They're strong. They are many. Yes, there are even giants in the land. But he repeatedly told them, don't worry about their size or their numbers. I will go before you and I will wipe them out. So this whole spy mission was born out of a spirit of unbelief, not trusting God at his word. And the results of the spy mission were disastrous. The entire Israelite community became discouraged. Their hearts melted with fear. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and they were unwilling to go into the promised land, and they all started weeping and wailing and wanting to go back to Egypt. Numbers 14, we continue with the story. From verse 1 to 4. That night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, <clears throat> By the way, just a little side note. Isn't it amazing how bad news catches on a lot faster than good news? <laughs> you have two voices, namely Joshua and Caleb, who come back full of faith saying, We can possess this land. We can conquer these giants. Let's go in immediately. Ten spies come back saying, We can't, we can't, we can't and they infected the whole congregation with their spirit of unbelief. <clears throat> Verse 2 again, all, everybody knows what all means, all. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt, 
or in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. (laughs) Now they're ready to vote in a new pastor who's going to take them back to Egypt. They're finished with Moses, they're finished with Aaron, and they're finished with God. They want to go back and die in Egypt. This is getting worse by the moment. Joshua and Caleb were the only two who went in there that came back speaking faith, speaking a positive message, and trying, yet failing, to encourage their fellow Israelites. Continuing in Numbers 14, from verse 5 down to verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Wow. Totally different message. We can... God will, we're going to devour them. They're not going to devour us. Don't be afraid. Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But look at verse 10. This sermon didn't go over very well. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. It just keeps getting worse. From verse 10 down to verse 20, we'll continue. This is where Moses steps in and he intercedes for the people. He cries out to God in prayer for the nation of Israel because God's anger is about to boil over. And Moses is a classic example of an intercessor, someone who stands between God and the people. Verse 10, Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? God is hot. How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. I wonder what many of us would have done at that point if we were in Moses' shoes. All right, God, let's do it. (laughs) Wipe them out. 
and let's start a whole new nation. No. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. You see, an intercessor is concerned about God's name, God's reputation, and God's glory. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able. Notice that. What Moses is most concerned about is what the nations are now going to be saying about his God. They will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now, may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. God's answer comes immediately in verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. If only that's where the story ended, it would have a happy ending. But being forgiven by God isn't the end of the story. There's more to it. God forgave them. But he goes on from verse 20 down to verse 30, we will read, to declare that every unbeliever in that entire generation, 20 years old and up, would never see the promised land. Every last one of them would die in the wilderness. Here's where we really see the severity of God. From verse 20, Nevertheless, as surely as I live, this is God speaking. He just forgave them. I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely, surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me <coughs> and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath. Wow. Not one of them will see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land 
he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness your bodies will fall. Every one of you twenty years old and more who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Now, if you do the math on this, we are told that God brought 600,000 men, didn't count the women and children, but 600,000 men were counted in the census after they came out of Egypt. We went through all that in Numbers chapter 1, where the tribes were numbered and they took a census of all those 20 years old and up. God is referring to that 600,000 number, and he says out of 600,000, two, just two, will be entering in to the promised land. 599,998 of you will die in this wilderness because you treated me with contempt, you didn't trust in me, and you grumbled against me. <clears throat> and to finish this up, and here's where we will close tonight, continuing a little further in Numbers 14, here's where we understand why it would be for 40 years in the wilderness. Numbers 14, from verse 31 to 39. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness, until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. And here it comes, verse 34. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. Wow. This 40-day spy mission really didn't go over well at all with God. So much so that for each day, they're going to pay for it with one year in the wilderness. That's severe. That's severe. That's kind of like... Uh, when you were a kid and your mom asked you to wash the dishes one night and you didn't do it, 
she comes along and says, okay, you're going to wash the dishes for the next 365 days. You're going to do them for a year because you failed to do it for one day. This is severe punishment. Let me read verse 34 again. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days, you explored the land. Remember, they explored it in unbelief, except for Joshua and Caleb. You will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. By the way, unbelief, we're going to talk more about this later on, unbelief is a sin. It's not a weakness. It's not a problem. It's a sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin, we are told in Romans 14.23. So God calls it sin. You will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. Verse 33. I, the Lord, have spoken... And I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community. Sorry to keep pausing, but let me remind you, God had already told Moses, I have forgiven them. They were forgiven, but they still weren't going into the promised land. You see, there are consequences for every sin. And we may be forgiven for that sin, but there are still consequences. Look at the life of King David. God forgave him for his sins of adultery and murder, but man, he paid for those sins for years thereafter. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will surely do these things to the whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it, these men, namely the ten other spies, who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land, were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. So right then and there, the ten evil spies were all stricken and they died right before the whole congregation. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Now, we're going to stop here, and we'll complete this final section of Part 5 next time. But this is, some, this is some serious stuff, that what seems to be a rather innocent little spy mission turned out very, very bad, and it cost them 40 years in the wilderness, and the death, of practically every single Israelite man 20 years and above. And this 40-year time in the wilderness, as we are looking in this last section, the primary purpose was to remove unbelief, remove grumbling, complaining, rebellion, 
and backsliding. And literally, it meant the removing of many of the people. They would die in the wilderness. God would raise up their children, a new generation, to go in and possess the land. Next time, we will look at one more example of how God dealt with rebellion with the children of Israel, and then we'll try to tie all of this together and see what it means for us as followers of Jesus Christ, as New Testament believers. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are told in your word to behold both the goodness and the severity of the Lord. You're a good God, you're a forgiving God, you're a merciful God, but you're also a God who judges, who chastens, and who punishes. And Lord, you have written these things down for us so that we might fear, that we might learn from Israel's examples and not follow them. God, I pray tonight for each and every one listening on the phone or on the internet to this Bible study. I pray, O oh God, that you would deliver us from unbelief, deliver us from grumbling and complaining, deliver us from fear, and God, help us to trust you at your word. Help us to believe your promises. We don't need any other proof. You've given us your word, and you've sworn on oath to give us a life of abundance in Jesus Christ. Just as you swore to them to give them that promised land, they doubted you, they treated you with contempt, and God, you destroyed that whole generation of doubters and grumblers and complainers. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to obey you. Help us, Lord, uh, to stand on your word and your promises and to enter into the fullness of all that you have promised and prepared for us. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister these words to each and every one of our hearts tonight. Help us to enter into the rest that you've prepared for us through faith and through obedience. And we will give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.